do you have the agenda off to the right? Jesus, we're such socialists. It's pathetic. It's, it's, it's embarrassing, really. <clears throat> yeah, I was just watching the uh, the thing that uh, Bhaskar did on the Jacobin YouTube about the history of social democracy. And there's this good moment where he's, yeah, it's a great presentation, but it's a good moment where he's um, talking about how the social democratic government in the 30s did this like commission and like how nationalizations would work if they ever did them. And he was like, yeah, that's what socialists are good at. You know, not so much doing things, but like having commissions and study groups and, you know, like that's, you know. That's- oh, you're getting ahead of yourself. I haven't heard. We, we didn't get a second for the agenda. It's true. Motion to approve. Anyone? I don't want this entire, I don't want these entire proceedings to be moot, you know, because we didn't follow Robert's rules. I second that. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. <laughs> Welcome everybody to today's episode of Dead Planet Society. This is the A-side. We got some big news on today's show. Uh, you guys have grown to know and love Ben Burgess. Uh, my my, uh, why did I just add a T to the end of your name? Ben Burgess, just co-host of the show for the past uh, few months. We just can't get enough of this expansion thing, so we're we're gonna we're gonna keep it going. We have a big announcement: a regular contributor, a part of the team. Co-host doesn't work anymore. There's gonna be too many of us. We're just gonna be all contributors, teammates, team members. I'll keep the uh, suspense to a minimum here and introduce uh, Brianna. Last, Brianna, how you doing? Welcome to the team. Thank you. Happy to be here. You guys will remember Brianna from a recent episode of DPS that we did with her. Uh, we talked about your piece in the bellows. So uh, you will not be a stranger to the DPS faithful. But those of you who, who for those of whom missed that episode, and shame on them, by the way, you could probably go back and listen to it. Uh, tell the listeners who you are and what you're all about. Sure. So I'm a member, a proud member of Philly DSA. I'm the chair of the political education committee and on the steering committee there. And uh, I'm a Philadelphia democratic socialist. (laughs) So that DSA education committee in Philadelphia, like you've got some awesome stuff going, right? Like Like I think you're having Thomas Frank in to talk with you. Yeah, we just invited Thomas Frank and he's going to speak with us and We've had a really successful lecture series that tries to emulate dead pundits' uh, long-form yeah. interviews. Shouts so, out to that to that series, though. Like I've I've in, uh, reproduced quite a few of those in the uh, in case you missed it series for patron uh, patrons of the show. So yeah, shouts I'm, out to you guys for for giving us content to feed to the patrons. <laughs> and I'd be I'm very, you know I'd be very excited about that. Um, you know that Thomas Frank one. Uh, anybody you know, who's listening, who hasn't read his book. Uh, now I haven't read his new one yet. Right. But the, the previous one, uh, listen, liberal is so damn good. It's like, I, I remember I listened to that. Um, I listened to the audio book of it, uh, you know, like a little bit every day while I was walking the dog or whatever, uh, back in 2016. And, uh, and like the audiobook I think came out like just after the democratic primary is over, and, you know, even though, you know, Frank's not like, you know, doesn't come from the sort of political tradition that we do. Basically, if you want like a really solid, really well-written, I don't know if he would think of it this way exactly or not, but but in, in essence, like a really solid class analysis of what happened in the 2016 primary, like that book is what you should read. Absolutely. 
yeah. find myself saying, listen, liberal, at least like a dozen times a day, uh, these <laughs> days, especially, uh, that's, that's the nice, that's the nicer version of what comes out of my mouth before a subsequent tirade. So yeah, Brianna, you we're, we've got three uh, team members on, on, on DPS. Now I think maybe we'll stop at a Baker's dozen, but this feels right. It feels good, uh, to bring somebody else in the mic, but, uh, but no, seriously, you bring a, a serious amount of heft to the show. You are uh, one of the hard boys, B-O-I-S, boys, hard boys up there in uh, Philly, pushing your strasserism and your class <laughs> reductionism as you do. No, I'm kidding. No, I mean, Philly is doing some of the most, seriously, the most important work in the entire uh, organization, all jokes aside. Obviously, you guys are no stranger to controversy, although like, despite the fact you guys do nothing wrong. Uh, that doesn't, of course, like, you know, silence the online scold brigades, but, you know, um, excited to have you on. It's going to be really great. Um, so recap for the people who didn't uh, catch your episode really quickly. Let's do this fast. Give us an elevator speech. What was that piece that appeared in the bellows all about? Cause like that to me, when I read that, I was like, holy shit. Like, I don't know this person, but <laughs> like this person gets it. Like she's got a gr- such a strong grasp on just like this bird's eye view of DSA and the American left and like where the strengths are, like where the fault lines lie, where the gaps are and like where they need to go next. So you, you've well rehearsed that piece by now. Give, give our listeners like a little elevator speech. Sure. Well, thank you for saying all those kind words about Philly. I'm inclined to believe you that it is the best (laughs) chapter, but I'm biased. So yeah, I think, you know, I wrote the piece right after Bernie, was out of the race. And I felt like Bernie had served as a unifying force for DSA. The, you know, super majority of members supported his candidacy and worked really hard on his campaign. And, you know, when electoral campaigns happen, all of your energy and attention is focused on that. I mean, during his campaign, I think I canvassed every weekend, you know, for several hours, sometimes on weeknights. So that's where our organization's focus was. And it also united us because we had a very clear goal. But once we lost that goal, I speculated about where we would go from there. And I pointed to some of the tensions within the organization, some of its structural challenges challenges from within and without as challenges that we really needed to address if we wanted to use the energy and the momentum that we generated from the Bernie campaign to actually move the movement forward. So that's an elevator pitch for the piece, I guess. If, if I, there was like a mission statement for the kind of concerns and interests of like this podcast since day one, like you captured most of them, most of them in that, in that speech and that, uh, that piece rather. Yeah. So I'll link that in the show notes if you guys haven't seen it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, everybody should read that. I uh, should also, uh, I should also say while I'm thinking about it, that uh, speaking of the bellows uh, that, so there's a whole, you know, extremely weird saga that happened with, with that, uh, that, you know, that magazine, people can look it up, but, uh, but um, Ryan Smith, who was half of the bellows um, and was responsible for, you know, for uh, figuring out a lot of their good content is uh, starting a new thing. Uh, it's going to be a Substack magazine called uh, the third rail, uh, which I believe is actually going to 
launch. Uh, I think people are probably going to be listening to this on Wednesday. I think it's going to launch the next day on Thursday. So I've I've got a piece in there on um, why you know right wing economic populism is mostly a silly fraud, and uh, it's it's entirely possible that uh, Adam and Brianna will 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 both have work there in the future. You know I hope so, but uh, but anyway, everybody should look out for that. Yeah, definitely, definitely support uh, the third rail. Also, it's just a kick-ass name. As somebody who's had to name like a, a political project before, like I recognize the difficulty, and so you just want to give give Ryan a little shout out for for that for that great success. Uh, don't touch it, folks. It's the third rail. It's hot. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, touching things in the hands. Uh, <laughs> nice segue. I know, right? Like, Wait, where are we going here? We we, we could go so many places. We're going to talk about Trump. We're going to yeah. talk about Biden. We're uh, going to talk yeah. about Slick Willie. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's going to be that last one. So not Trump, but uh, but a a fellow um, regular on the past new list of the Lolita Express, mm-hmm. um, former president of the United States. There's only you know the one and only uh, Bill Clinton. Yeah, yeah. My man, my man. Uh, let's let's not. I mean, it's 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 funny to joke about. It's also uh, absolutely disgusting and appalling. And as somebody who's, did you guys watch the uh, the Epstein? like sort of mini mini doc docu-series uh that just came out a couple couple of weeks ago i think is it on netflix you guys really need I, to watch. Not. I believe it is on netflix i haven't i haven't seen it i mean i've, I've the chapo guys have been kind of obsessed with that for like you know a year yeah. so I, I i think i have an idea oh you got an idea yeah, you definitely have the scoop i mean the little saint james island all of that it's real this shit is real as hell and uh they got a lot of a lot of anyway so uh one of the the women who was kind of um tasked with, uh, I should say, groomed as a procurer of sorts. And she herself was also abused and, and, and brutally raped and, and all taken advantage of as a, as a young woman and all, their, all the horrific things that, that, were, that these people were exposed to. But um, she reported having seen Bill Clinton on that island on several occasions. And uh, this is notable <clears throat> for a couple of, first of all, because he's a former fucking U.S. president. Second of all, because our current U.S. president, Donald J. Trump, uh, sent his uh, condolences <laughs> to uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, you know, J- Jeff Epstein's right-hand woman, um, and, 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 and was given the opportunity to apologize, contextualize, or retract that statement and chose not to. He defended it and doubled down. Uh, I believe Ghislaine was at it, one of his, at his daughter's wedding, if I'm not mistaken. Or, or was that the Clintons? I'm, I'm not up on this Epstein shit. Oh, I, I think if I'm remembering right, yeah. Well, anyway, there's certainly there's certainly a wedding photo uh, of of them together, as as there are of uh, of course of uh, of of Bill and Hillary uh, with uh, Melania and Donald. You know, basically every time you start looking at this stuff, it's like it's like too on the nose to be quite real. It's like a uh, it's it's. Because it's like, you know, you sort of think, okay, well, you know, right, I've got this certain kind of material analysis of how, how power works. But it, come on, I mean, like, it's not literally some, like, cartoonish, vulgar yeah. thing. Where, like, yeah, like, 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 like Mr. Burns, like, you know, like, uh, twiddling yeah. his thumbs behind, like, a, a desk with all of the bad guys in the world surrounding him. It's like that photo. It's like, sometimes it is. Yeah, that meme, that photo meme. I want to say it's um, maybe Reagan. It's definitely uh, George H. Bush. Uh, George H.W. Bush, and then it was like uh, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, uh, like a lot, a couple financiers. I want to say 
like one of the former like treasury uh, tre- secretaries of the treasury or whatever laugh. They're all laughing their ass off at the same time. Have you ever seen this meme? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's a big club and you ain't in it. That kind of like that kind of vibe to it. It's like, yeah. Seeing pictured photos of Gillian Maxwell sure. side by side with Clinton's and Trump. It's just too, it's too on the nose. You don't get that kind of like bare. Uh, anyway, wh- why are we bringing up uh, Clinton in his um, frequent trips on the Lolita Express? Well, first of all, because I think a lot of this stuff is about to come out in a big way. Uh, billionaires and plutocrats and uh, their political pri- paid political prize fighters are about to to get served, I think, in the next couple of years in a way that uh, it's going to rock the world order. Uh, I don't know how it couldn't. Of course, there's plenty of time to strangle Ghislaine in her sleep. And Lord knows that might happen. But uh, Bill Clinton made some, former President Clinton made some pretty um, interesting remarks about James Clyburn this past uh, week in, in reference to uh, Clyburn ending with the stroke of his hand, the Sanders campaign. So this is a, this is a brutal kind of pile on moment where it's like, you know, whose side are you on? President Mrs. Bush, President Obama, Speaker Pelosi, thank you. And Representative Hoyer and Representative Clyburn. who I really thank for with the stroke of a hand, ending an intra-family fight within our party, (laughs) proving that peace is needed by everyone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. An intra-family fight where those dirty communist bastard redhead stepchilds tried to come in and take what was rightfully ours. That's that's my my, uh, horse faux somber bill clinton impression it's horrendous yeah that's that's awesome though i mean it's 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 really nice to know uh, how much the big dog values democracy <laughs> you couldn't just when the ideology is just right there it's just yeah, there for the, you to pick as as uh as my favorite slovenian might put it <laughs> so on so on it's the ideology it burns it burns it's 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 too in your face uh We've got, you know, I mean, I've seen a number of people say such things. For example, James Carville was foaming at the mouth. Another former Clinton uh, staffer at one point uh, was foaming at the mouth when James Clyburn sort of thumbed the scale in the way that he did for, for Biden in South Carolina. Uh, was just dancing on the desk of the, I believe, MSNBC studio <clears throat> in the wake of that action. But of course, I, that was unscripted, wasn't it? Like Clinton's remarks, he was he's a James Clyburn, and he, he started to go on, but he couldn't fucking help himself, could he? Could he looked around him, and he was surrounded by all of his fucking cronies. They all go to the same dinners, and and uh, you know probably fly on the same airplanes, and uh, he couldn't fucking help himself. He had to spike the football, and I think like this is so reminiscent of like what's happening right now in the Democratic Party. Mask off. Unity be damned. It is, it's, it's time for the purge, baby. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, and like, this is very, like, the, I mean, like on, on one level, it's unbelievable that like he would just say that, right. You know, that's like, oh, you know, like, oh, you know, thank, you know, thank God, like, you know, Clyburn, like really, you know, really did us a solid there. Or we would have had to spend like months arguing about policy and, and, you know, whether Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders platform, you know, was better than, you know, for, 
for poor and working people, you know, God, we can't have, you know, that would have been a nightmare. So, so thank God we were spared from that. But then like, on the other hand, it's like, this shouldn't be that surprising since just before this, the DNC platform committee voted 125 to 36 to not even pretend in the middle of a pandemic uh, in a party platform, which nobody even reads, would be the most like safe, harmless way of, of making this meaningless rhetorical concession to not even pretend to support Medicare for all in a situation where like tens of millions of people more than ever, right, don't have employer health insurance. I'm just I'm just staring. I hope you guys you guys can see this amazing picture of uh, <laughs> James Carville, who. I oftentimes forget about from time to time, but this man is is the heart and soul of the old guard of the Democratic Party, and he said like he he says the quiet part loud, doesn't he? It's it's rare to catch it's rare to catch the likes of Bill Clinton sort of uh, pounding his chest in that way. But this is what you're going to see. This is what you're going to see. A little off the cuff, but like you know, uh, you've got Joe Kennedy the third up against uh, Ed Markey in Massachusetts. You know, you've got uh, the attempted primary of AOC. You've got uh, challenges to the right of nearly everyone who's worth a damn in Congress. And, um, you know, it's, this is, this is the way of the future. We got, I was, you know, talking, we were talking off air. We got to get like no Mickey Const back on because what, whatever happened to this kind of call for unity now, at this point, they're just blatantly and brazenly shoving their thumbs in the eyes of anyone to the left of Joe Kennedy the third. Okay. It's it's uh, it's remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing how much discipline they have in a way. Mm-hmm. Like um, you can look at it as okay, they can't even concede this symbolic gesture. But on the other hand, it's a real show of force that all of them can agree that helping most people is a bad idea. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's unbelievable. All right. Enough gloom and doom. We got some, we, 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 we speaking of spiking the football, it's time for us to spike the football. Um, so this all unfolded today on Tuesday, Chicago teachers, uh, they whooped some ass, didn't they? Yeah. So, uh, what Adam is referring to is the fact that, you know, AFT American Federation of Teachers president, Randy Weingarten told members on Tuesday that the union leadership would support potential teacher safety strikes as a last resort amid calls to reopen schools during the pandemic. And the Chicago Teachers Union today announced that they would convene an emergency House of Delegates meeting next week to call for a strike vote as Chicago public school heads determined that they would have a partial reopening. And then within hours of that announcement, uh, Chicago Public Schools decided that fall would be virtual completely. So it was a kind of remarkably swift reversal. I, I mean, it's, it's almost as if, uh, as if using the power that people have as workers and threatening to withdraw their labor was actually like a really effective strategy for bringing about change, getting, you know, getting what you want, you know, it's like possibly even more so than, than, uh, you know, doing petitions or, uh, or, um, you know, endorsing candidates, you know, uh, 
15 months before the election and hoping that they're grateful for it when they're elected or uh, <laughs> posting on Twitter or, you know, any of the other things that, you know, people use as political strategies. Yeah. I mean, I think like ultimately uh, the people who are at the point of production, in this case, the point of production of knowledge, uh, you know, strike action gets the goods, as we said. And hopefully this can be kind of like a beacon for, for the rest of the labor left uh, and, and just the labor center. Fuck it. Anybody who's working right now and, and uh, at risk, um, they need to flex some collective muscle. I mean, you know, this didn't come from nowhere, right? CT, CTU has been a, a militant trade union since they, the, that sort of, um, what are the left, the left caucus and, uh, and took, uh, what was it, 2011? Was that when they kind of were swept into power? Jesse Sharkey and Karen and the rest of them? Oh, it sounds about right, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, but it's, it's definitely like one of the real political successes uh, of, um, of socialists in the United States, you know, from kind of before the rise of the DSA and the, um, in the form it currently exists, right? You know, the other one, I guess, being Kashama Sawant uh, in, uh, in Seattle and, and her role in the, you know, getting elected to the city council and getting the, the $15 uh, minimum wage there. You know, and, and in both cases, I think it's interesting, right, because without getting too deep into the trivia of, of like, the, the, the org map of the American far left, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's also, you know, these, these are cases where people maybe come from, um, you know, like, like some, of the, some of these militants uh, in, in Chicago uh, either were members of or, or, were, or, or were somewhat, you know, associated with, uh, you know, the ISO, the International Socialist Organization, Kashama Sawant is obviously you know, the leading light of Socialist Alternative, which are both groups that come from this kind of Trotskyist tradition that have this, in some ways, you know, you know, in some ways, frankly, you know, kind of this like self-marginalizing, you know, way of, uh, of doing politics sometimes. But I think in however, like, incomplete a way, I think in both the Chicago and Seattle examples, they were able to kind of break out of some of those bad habits and, and you know, form some more pragmatic alliances. And, you know, and it, it paid, you know, and it, and it paid off in a big way, and, you know, helped kind of show, you know, what was possible. And, you know, and, and, it, and it's like, it's still like this incredibly, you know, useful example, right? I mean, like I was, I was a, a member of the leadership of, of a, of an AFT local, you know, for, for two years. And, you know, and, and so like kind of just having that example from Chicago, you know, was like a really useful thing just to know that that exists, that there's like a more useful way, you know, mm-hmm. to, to run one of these organizations to, uh, uh, to, you know, to have like a more, you know, kind of militant and useful perspective. Yeah, I think Chicago was also really known for their model in which they involved parents and, you know, the community at large, which I also think probably played a role in this case as well, because there has been really shifting opinion on willingness to send kids to school. So there was like a Gallup poll that came out yesterday that showed that overwhelmingly parents at least want a hybrid model. And there was a huge decline in parents wanting some kind of in all in-person education. So I think, I think kind of the stars aligned in this case in a way that helped the teachers. It wasn't just them flexing. Although I do think that they, they did do that as well. Right, yeah, sure. well, and, and, it's, and it's both, right? You know, that like they have that, uh, that they, they did flex these muscles and also, you know, that like part of what they've done right, right? It's, it's not just sort of like, you know, 
be as militant as possible, though God knows a lot of teachers unions could use a lot more of that, right? But uh, it's, it's, it's also what you're saying, right? You know, building these alliances with parents, you know, trying to like think more strategically about how to get the community, you know, behind what the union is doing. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, on the, on the point of like uh, the change in like public opinion about, you know, school choice, isn't it, isn't it fucking awesome that like the bastards who've been like pushing this, this notion of school choice, shoving it down our throats for the past 20 years are like the first now who are like, motherfucker, you better get your kids in school. There's no other way. You know, like it's like, it's just this like remarkable, like cynical reversal in the midst of this pandemic that like, you know, there's this obviously the only thing for us to do is send our kids into a fucking death trap. There's no choice, right? And these same people have been beating their chest and foaming at the mouth about school choice all along. It's, 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 that's great. That's the best part about this for me. Really? It's, it's fun to watch. Speaking of uh, school choice and uh, teachers unions and all the rest, Randy Weingarten, head of the AFT, was giving some positive signals about supporting militant teacher action, uh, you know, so about a month ago. That has obviously been subordinated to the prerogatives of the current Democratic Party leadership in, in the lead up to uh, the 2020 general election. I, don't, I haven't really been following this closely. Brown, you've been following the way that uh, AFT just shot down Medicare for all as, as a component of their platform in the middle of a, of a pandemic. Um, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. So AFT held their annual convention virtually last week, and there were a host of resolutions that were deliberated, you know, some symbolic, some involving how teachers were going to respond to the crisis. And of course, the resolution that caught everyone's eye, as you mentioned, Adam, is their resolution for single-payer health care, which is entitled A Healthcare System That Works for All by 2025. And there's kind of an interesting history with this resolution. So the initial resolution's language advocated for a public universal single-payer health care system, full stop. And then prior to the convention, it was amended by Jill Kohner, who's a a delegate from the Federation of Public Health and Human Services. I looked her up. Apparently, she's also a member of the Montana State Senate, and she received some money from Blue Cross Blue Shield. No surprise there. And this Montana Democrats are just awesome, by the way. You guys (laughs) recall Steve Bullock. That that uh, flint steaming pile of shit. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So she was the you know this amendment suggested that teachers would be happy with universal coverage through private health insurance that contained a public option, and so that's a you know basically equivalent to preserving the current system. And what's interesting is that Randy Weingarten's caucus, which is the Progressive Caucus, whipped votes for this amendment. And the amended resolution passed with a supermajority. So it goes to show you that members are really taking signals from their leaders. And it also kind of shows you that there's not necessarily this like rank and file militancy that's being suppressed per se. But, you know, this, people are scared for their lives right now. Medicare for all seems like a really far off option because even if we get Biden... As we just discussed, Biden is not going to be for Medicare for all. So, you know, yeah, famously, I think 
uh, said yeah. he was Zito Medicare for all, which is amazing. Right. And, you know, the union's action is not uh, particularly unique. You know, national, the National Education Association also voted against Medicare for all, SEIU, IBEW. So, and it was, it's also not surprising because Randy Weingarten, since last September, started backing away from her, you know, position on Medicare for all and wrote that, you know, horrible political column that said that Medicare for all presented false choices to Americans. So none of this is particularly surprising, but I think what's interesting is that the coverage is about how this is just another case of the union bureaucrats selling out their members. And I'm not sure if that's totally true. Uh, I mean, I think it's it's probably a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. I mean, unions are in a really defensive position right now. Also, uh, you know, with this crisis, we can see that there is some increased militancy around safe, safe work conditions. So to suggest that, you know, they're in this completely placated position isn't totally accurate either. And I don't know, I mean, I think, I think it's kind of a realistic position considering Biden and considering the events that transpired. So I don't know, what do you guys think? I think you're seeing this all over the place uh, with, with respect to the movement of the Democratic Party right now. And I think it's just it's it's just an extension of Trump derangement syndrome, you know, Corona version, uh, the latest instantiation of Trump derangement syndrome, where any kind of um, any vulnerability in this kind of valence of politics that the Democratic Party establishment specializes in, which is this kind of like uh, the, the, the 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 style of politics that exists in like pure rhetoric, right? Just pure rhetoric. No substantive policy. Um, it's like Nancy Pelosi, like, you know, like owning Trump is calling him like the big, the big fat orange man or whatever, right? And spiking the football as though she just, you know, scored a, a tremendous victory. This is the, it's the battle of like hollow and empty rhetoric. And so what they're trying to do now is sanitize all of the mainstream, like, you know, interest groups, uh, alignments and, and institutions that are traditionally, um, you know, aligned with the Democratic Party mainstream sanitizing them of any vulnerability in that particular war of rhetoric, that culture war that the Republican Party and Democratic Party elites specialize in. And you saw that, you know, look no further than Representative Karen Bass getting skewered online. I mean, Castro was trending on Twitter the other day because uh, they dug up uh, Karen Bass's memorialization of, of Fidel Castro in 2016 when he passed away. Um, you know, smearing her as a, a communist. And, and, and this is, why is it important? Who the fuck is Karen Bass, Representative Bass? Well, she ended up, at least allegedly, on a short list of potential VP picks for Biden 2020. And so, you know, you're, you're just seeing the, 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 the all-out retreat from anything that smells like change. Anything that's, that, that's, that whiff, has a whiff of like, militancy or radicalism of anything that by the way could ever actually solve anyone's problems you know and that's 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 what you're getting right now you know hence again you know the dnc uh, platform vote which has time you know policy after policy seen uh, the sanders wing eat mounds of shit it's just it's just astonishing but you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna see much much more of this leading up to the general election and you're gonna see a center left completely hollowed out by this. It might work, right? Like they might hobble to the finish line. 
in November. But what will be left behind uh, will be the empty shell of of a liberalism that that you know nobody really believes anymore. Sorry, that was dark. <laughs> I mean, that's 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 right, though. I mean, you you have to uh, you know you have to start with the uh, the the dark reality, and then then we can see about. Uh, you know, groping our way to the light, you know, uh, you know, sooner or later, uh, which, you know, which obviously, you know, is, uh, is, is a big project. And, and I don't think any of us really claim to know totally what that looks like right now. Um, because, you know, this, I think that like, you, you obviously, you know, don't want to go into nihilism. You want to, you know, you want to talk about the, um, you know, the victories and signs of progress that there are, you know, but uh, at the same time, uh, I don't think anybody's served by us like being like the, uh, you know, like the, the Baghdad bobs of, uh, of, of the, uh, the American left, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, circa summer 2020. I mean, like it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's gonna, you know, it's, it's gonna mean more when we talk about, uh, you know, stuff that actually is encouraging if, if we're real with people about, uh, you know, about where we are right now, which is not good. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you both are really on point here. Like, I don't know, I'm really revealing my workerist tendencies, but you can see here, this is such a perfect example of how Randy Weingarten is going on the line when it comes to protecting, protecting the like very, very immediate interests of the workers. Uh, but anything beyond that is just really kind of impossible right now. Um, and so, I mean, that that's kind of what we would expect at this point uh, for uh, a union president. And it's disappointing. Do I think that's where we want to be? Definitely not. Um, but it's just the reality. I think the most disappointing thing about all of this is it's probably going to work for now. Right. It's probably going to work. This is, this is a super dangerous thing to say, but Biden is probably going to win in November at this point. You know, Trump has plenty of time to kind of um, produce his faux victories and get his his base all uh, foamed at the mouth. But, you know, it's probably going to win for now. And, and, and so then the question becomes like in the most immediate term with the goal of getting Trump, as Bernie Sanders has said over and over again, I didn't quite I didn't approve of his emphasis on this. But he's not wrong that Donald J. Trump is the most dangerous president in modern history, one of the most dangerous men in the world, without question. Um, and so that has to be a priority to get this get this goon out of office. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And and you know, and and really, I mean, look, I mean, obviously, uh, there are lots of other you know things that are in in some ways more immediately like apocalyptic going on there with the stakes of that, certainly in terms of uh, the pandemic. Uh, you know, I believe right now we've got the uh, fourth worst uh, death rate uh, in the world, right? So we're not quite number one, but we're, uh, we're getting there. And obviously, you know, uh, what climate change could look like going forward. But like, you know, but ta- even taking a step back from all of that, you know, from, from a left perspective, I mean, you know, as... as you know, to, to be, you know, workerist about this, like, uh, like Brianna just said, what happens with like stuff that's kind of mundane to the point that I think most people on the left really aren't tracking it as much as they should be, 
about stuff like uh, National Labor Relations Board appointees uh, in the next four years actually matters quite a lot strategically, right? Like, uh, you know, Joe Biden is obviously a, a, a representative, you know, of, of, of one wing of, of the, uh, you know, the class enemy and, uh, and, and is a scumbag in many, many ways, you know, that I, I doubt anybody who listens to Debt Funded Society, you know, needs to be rehearsed for them. But different wings of the ruling class have different governing strategies. And if you're serious about power, and if you're not, you know, like, I don't know what the point of all this is, you know, and if you are, uh, the differences between those strategies matter in terms of thinking about how there are openings for us. And as we kind of start to regroup from the like profound defeats, you know, that the left has been suffering lately, ultimately there never has been, and there never will be an effective socialist movement that doesn't have an organized working class at its base. Uh, and so with that in mind, whether you're going to have NLRB appointees and judges uh, who are on a crusade to stamp out certainly what's left of public sector unions uh, and do what they can to help crush the remaining private sector ones is something that 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 matters. You know that that matters quite a lot, right? Like, I mean, like that should be, you know, that should be like right up at the top of our list of concerns. Yeah, no doubt. I'm actually quite optimistic about the left's prospects under a Biden presidency. I mean, let's not, let's not, I mean, obviously Obama defanged the left a lot in 2008. Like we, we don't want to be like Pollyannish about that, about that potential, but uh, Biden is not an Obama. He's not a guy who, who even attempts the kind of soaring rhetoric, uh, this faux progressivism that like Adolf Reed Jr. diagnosed in, in back in 1999 when Obama was like a counselor or whatever the fuck he was, <clears throat> uh, in Chicago. Uh, but, 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 you know, let's not forget that the, what, what ultimately was catalyzed uh, in the Bernie wave started in Obama's second term with the dissatisfaction of the state of like contemporary American liberalism. People sort of, you know, um, those contradictions, right. Started become, started becoming more clear. And so, like, I'm not arguing for some, like, three-dimensional chess galaxy brain maneuver wherein leftists should, like, stridently work to get Biden elected and go knocking door to door to make that happen because then that will seed the ground for future successes. But, but we, you know, why not look at what seems to be inevitable at this point and, and, and uh, try, to, try to see uh, the fault lines and, and, the, and the opportunities that might arise? Like, why not at this point? What, what else can we do? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm not as optimistic as you am, but... I think at the very least, this is an unfortunate double entendre, but it will bite us time, you know, to be able to just not <laughs> have to respond to just assault after assault and be able, because I think you're right that he, you know, it just, it's not the same as at the Trump time. It's just, yeah, it'll be altogether a different mood. We shouldn't underestimate what Trump derangement syndrome has done to the American populace. It's it's almost astonishing, given that context, that that a guy like Bernie Sanders could could have as much of a hearing as he has had somebody who's perceived to be risky. I mean, someone like, you know, my boomer father could say, well, you know, his ideas, you know, I don't have anything wrong with him per se. It's just that I don't think anybody else will like him. It's too risky. It's too risky right now. We can't risk, you know, 
uh, handing Trump another four years. You can't. I mean, I don't know that we've really had an appropriate accounting on the Bernie left for for what having a fucking buffoon like Trump in the White House during uh, a, a kind of um, left progressive challenge in, in a Democratic Party primary has has produced. You know, I mean, it's again. I, look at me. I'm in. I'm in the optimistic mode today. You guys, what's happening? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look. I I think um, you know. I, I think that actually, even uh, even Obama, right? I mean, like, it is true, of course, that there are some ways that he defanged the left, right? You know, because because a lot of people, well, I don't know. I'm trying to come up with a way of putting this that's not fell for it, but you know, fell for it. Uh, you know, I mean that you know whatever, like Adolf Reed was incredibly perceptive about, you know, who and what Obama was in 1999. But, you know, lots of people, you know, lots of people who've made lots of political progress in the last few years were not in 2008 or even 2012, right? Uh, And, you know, like there are innumerable uh, cars where the Bernie Sanders sticker went next to the still there old Obama 2012 sticker, right? You know, like that. So there's a lot of evidence that the, uh, that people who would have been open to something better Right, you know, did did fall for it, and certainly, and it's you know, I think the anti-war movement, you know, was 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 really derailed, you know, by uh, Obama becoming president. But at the same time, I think there's also a substantial sense in which, even in the Obama years, we saw some ways in which the left actually does better when it's fighting against a neoliberal Democrat uh, than against like a maniac, you know, kind of. Um, ostentatiously evil right-wing Republican. Uh, because if you think back to, you know, the Bush years, um, the, uh, we, I'll tell uh, the audience that the, uh, there was a earlier version of this that we decided not to use that included a lot of nineties talk, you know, pinky in the brain, stuff like that. But, uh, uh, but, you know, if you think back to, uh, you know, to, um, to the Bush years, right. Then, uh, Things were super dismal, right? As far as like any kind of opening for any kind of left, like literally, like all dissenting energy was channeled through like just bullshit, like uh, like the John Stewart, like you know, march to you know restore sanity or whatever. Right. Uh, and then in the Obama years even though there were obviously these disadvantages for the left and having Obama in office that we talked about, it's also true that like, that's when Occupy Wall Street happened. That's when the first, you know, Bernie Sanders run happened, you know? Um, like, I think that there are certain respects, especially on domestic issues where not being able to blame everything that's going on, on this, like on like some like cartoonishly evil Republican figurehead, actually does mean that there's like more of an opening for, you know, systemic uh, critique and, you know, and, and for, you know, and, and for people even to draw left conclusions about economics. Yeah, no doubt. With that being said, the ranks of progressives and, and even, you know, self-styled democratic socialists have revealed themselves to be like really enthralled with that kind of, with their own brand of that, like uh, that valence of that political valence of, of uh, like, rhetoric fetishization which like you know in a word the culture wars you know i mean that's that's the real kind of challenge um i think we're we, we're, we're slated to talk a lot more about that with our guest on the b side this week dustin Westella. uh just as a quick pitch we're going to be chatting with dustin who is um one of your comrades in philly uh brianna 
Uh, he is also uh, works with the Teamsters, uh, frequent contributor to Jacobin Magazine, uh, one of the most like underrated, unknown guys, uh, commentators, political commentators on the, on the socialist left. Uh, I'll be sure to gas him up in person too. It's probably because the man is like allergic to Facebook and Twitter, which he should be. But um, what's up with the Brianna? What's up with that? Why? Why? Are you, why? Why is Philly DSA so extremely offline? Was that like a conscious collective choice, or is it just like <laughs> the culture of, of, of the place? We passed a resolution at our last general meeting. <laughs> Nobody's allowed <laughs> that you can that you can only tweet about '90s jokes. And yeah. so far so good that's that that was, that's probably a good call i, I think uh you know i, I think I'd, I'd support a little stalinist like you know top-down organizational discipline on that point if we could enforce that nationally no doubt yeah no doubt the rumors are true we are we are democratic centralists that's right uh fair enough well yeah. Yeah, that 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 B side is going to be fire. It's going to be featuring uh, Dustin Guestel, of course. So you guys, uh, if you're not a patron, you're going to miss it. It's going to be. I'm going to be. It's going to be very sad for you, to be honest with you. Uh, Dustin spits fire, and I, I, man, it's been a long time coming to have him on the podcast. We talked with Jared Abbott. Um, oh, I don't know, maybe at this point, six, seven months ago, about their uh, co-authored piece in Catalyst Journal um, about you know what it would what it would take to start building towards a socialist party in the United States, a labor party more specifically in the United States. But yeah, looking forward to that chat. If you're not a patron, you're going to miss it. That's on uh, patreon.com slash dead pundits. Become a member today and get access to that as well as a ridiculously extensive catalog, back catalog of B-sides going all the way back to 2017. So uh, yeah, sign up today. You guys will uh, have enough listening to get you through uh, a couple of pandemics. Any parting words for the folks? Brianna, thanks for coming uh, on, on your first A-side. How do you feel? You feel like uh, you're part of the team. You're uh, warmed up and, and ready to go for future future exploits. Feeling great. As I said yesterday, I feel born to podcast. <laughs> She's born to cast the pods, folks. All right, everybody, uh, we we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to chatting with the patrons here pretty soon. If you're not a patron, again, sign up. I mean, seriously, though, and in all seriousness, I suck at this part of the show. Uh, but but building left institutions is a an absolutely critical part of what we're doing here. And uh, for better, or for worse, DPS is 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 something like a left institution. Uh, I think that, you know, our mission, no doubt, uh, with the addition of Ben and even doubling down on that with the addition of Brianna, our mission is to educate and entertain along the way, I hope, but to educate the, the next layer of socialist cadres. They're going to be absolutely essential to pulling off anything that makes our project worth doing, as Ben mentioned just a second ago, unless, you know, you're just, you're just searching for internet clout, uh, assuming you're, you're, you're going above and beyond that. Uh, that's what this is all about. So, you know, I, I, I ask you, uh, humbly to, to support us on Patreon to become a member and you're going to get a lot of great content as a reward. So, To the patrons, we'll see you guys over on the B-side. To the rest of you, we'll see you all same time, same place next week.